Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's returning guest is uh, David Gregory. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely my pleasure, and even more of a pleasure when I discovered that we're going to get a chance because it's being released on Blu-ray on the 1st of June, uh, the documentary Blood and Flesh, The Real Life and Ghastly Death of Al Adamson. It was uh, It played to a very full house at Fright Fest, as I remember. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. And uh, that was a, a terrific show. Uh, I premiered my last documentary, Lost Soul, uh, The Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island Dr. Moreau at Fright Fest uh, four years before, I think. So I was happy to be back. And I think it's safe to say Al Adamson's not a name that everyone knows. And it's one of those wonderful things where when you watch a documentary, you go, how the hell don't I know? How the hell don't I know about this man? How do I, oh, this is an amazing story. I remember I turned to um, Graham Skipper, who, who, who was over from uh, from LA for for the festival, and we were just like, "Why, why don't we know about him?" <laughs> Let's give people a reason to watch it. Do you want to give your what you would call your brief synopsis to what uh, Blood and Flesh is all about? Blood and Flesh is about uh, filmmaker Al Adamson the late filmmaker Al Adamson, who made about 31, 32 movies between uh, 1959 and the mid-90s. And in the mid-90s, he was murdered. So he has, like, uh, the story takes a very strange turn in the third act. But before that, he basically was one of these B-movie directors who, with whatever resources he had, which was not much money, he would gather... Uh, a lot of enthusiastic youngsters and a lot of aging Hollywood people and make genre movies. He worked in every genre. He worked in horror, crime, uh, sexploitation, exploitation, uh, biker movies. He, he did it all. And he worked at an incredibly rapid rate. And he's often uh, spoken of in the kind of in, in terms of being like Ed Wood, but he was quite different in that he didn't actually have the same passion for sci-fi or for the genre that uh, that 
that Ed Wood had. But he had the talent of being able to, along with his partner, Sam Sherman, to put together the right people to make something for nothing and fill the drive-ins during this period. And Sam Sherman was the guy who'd come up with these lurid titles and campaigns. And often they would make one movie, not be happy with it, and then go and revisit, shoot some more material, turn it into a completely different movie, and then release it again with a with, with a different title and completely new campaign. So anyway, it's basically a trials and tribulations, trenches of B-movie filmmaking, uh, right up until things turn exceedingly weird as uh, as he gets into his later life. I didn't mean for it to maybe sound too disrespectful in my not having heard of him. It was more of a, that was more of a guilty conscience speaking than it was anything else because i well funnily enough he's not he's not really um celebrated among uh you know b horror movie directors in the same way some of his contemporaries are and i think it's because he worked in so many different genres even though he made a, a number of horror movies most famously dracula versus frankenstein uh, but i think maybe because he wasn't you know regularly a, ho a horror movie director that maybe he didn't have that he hasn't had you know the same amount of books written on him and uh, an article things like that you know what was the starting point for you where you're going right this is this is the man i need to, having you know richard stanley un, under the belt that was an amazing story which it was um you go what do i get my teeth into next and you go this is the story i want to tell where where does it begin for you in terms of thinking this is what this this could make a great documentary well, that's exactly what I was looking for. I mean, I still continue to produce special features for our own uh, discs, for Severin and, mm. and for some other companies as well. And for me, I was looking for a story that was at, that could actually be a feature film on its own, the same way that the Richard Stanley Islander Dr. Moreau story was. Mm. And so when I was shooting an interview with a guy who'd written a book on, on, on Al Adamson, David Connell, um, just very quickly during that interview, I, I, I realized that, that this was the story. But basically we were, uh, we were, um, and so I was doing that interview and then I just thought that this not only had the true crime element, which was interesting to me, but then, um, on the back of that, there were all these colorful characters like Bud Cardos and Zandor Vorkov and Marilyn Joy and Gary Kent and Russ Tamblin and all these people who, you know, are fascinating in and of themselves that come into this story. And I thought, if I can just get a couple of those on board, then we're onto something. And so that just kind of kicked off a three year journey to get the whole story. Now, it's interesting because a bit like the um, a bit like the Richard Stanley one. There's kind of a kind of context to set, and then a kind of a kind of th second half of second act, third act sort of Jesus Christ, what's going on? Which is this? Is this a formula you've concocted? Well, well, on this one in particular, I actually, I actually wanted to start it like one of those sensationalist true crime shows where it's like, what, what happened? You know. Something terrible happened here, da, 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 da. because because that will actually because a lot of people haven't heard of Al Adams and particularly not you know uh, movie people haven't heard of him. That's kind of the thing that lures people into a story like this. But then go back to t to spend the time to actually tell his life story and you know, all that he achieved during his life. I mean that's that's really what I wanted to do. I actually wanted to make sure that people got to know this person and the people around him and you know what he what he was able to do and all these movies he was able to make and get into onto driving screens uh, before we actually then take that left turn in firstly into UFOs and then secondly into the crime.
it had it had shades of I don't know if you've ever seen it, Jenny Finley's documentary Orion, the Man Who Will Be King. Oh, I haven't seen that. No, it's uh, I mean that's it's a wholly different story, but it's about a singer who who can sound just like Elvis, and in the wake of Elvis's death, he becomes this masked man who can be Elvis, and there's a rumor that he is Elvis, and interesting. And so, so that's kind of a crazy story in of itself. And then it goes into it. it go, it's narrative. Then, once you've got used to who the character is, and you begin to almost like you're beginning to celebrate this thing you think you've discovered, and then then tragedy walks right into the story and and begins to sort of pull at your heartstrings. And I feel like I feel like you achieved very much the same thing with uh, with Al Anderson in the sense of I went into it not knowing a great deal about him. I got to know a lot in a short space of time, and then you kind of just ripped me heart out. Yes, that, that was kind of the idea. I mean, it's, you know, just it was one thing that one way I was able to get certain people who weren't used to being on camera or hadn't been on camera for a while uh, it, it, into it, like Zandor Vorkov being a, a prime example, because I had to tell him that this is not just about the murder of of this person that you knew, you know, I do actually want to celebrate all that he achieved warts and all, you know, I mean, it's definitely not a hey, geography. There's definitely some, uh, some, um, some people who still carry anger about, about the way that Al treated them and usually to do with money. I mean, they were working, uh, in, they were working in circumstances with very little money. So they were, they were scraping by, you know, nobody got rich off these movies, but, uh, but the fact is they got these movies made and that, that is quite something, you know, anyone who's, uh, anyone who's made a low budget movie knows that, you know, once you, once you, once you're out of the starting gate, you've got to do whatever you can to get it made and get it finished. Yeah. I got the sense that, um, he, he made uh, a trauma production seem like Sony studios in comparison. Indeed. I mean, sometimes they were working with such little budgets. It's it's incredible. And there are other times they would take existing movies, sometimes from a decade ago, from another country. And then he'd shoot scenes to basically try and make it into a movie that would work in the American market. You know, like Horror of the Blood Monsters is basically a, uh, a Filipino uh, kind of prehistoric movie and then they had to turn they shot a bunch of movies a uh, bunch of scenes with John Carradine and Robert Dix and Vicky Volante to make it into a kind of sci-fi movie uh, and uh, and and that one and the the Filipino movies black and white and they were shoot, they needed it to be a color movie so they shot all these color scenes and pretended it was a color movie and came up with this gimmick to tint the the footage and justify it it's very absurd but very amusing to watch what do you think as as a sort of purveyor of 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 of, uh, of genre what do you think is the charm in 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 the work that he has produced that legacy uh, i think i think it's highly enjoyable i mean <clears throat> at the end of the day it's not pretending to be anything other than it is you know i.e something that's entertainment something that was uh, that was cheap entertainment that was made to fill the drive-ins and now you look at it they had a lot of creativity had to go into like making something out of that and they're very fun and i don't sit and watch them laughing at these films. I mean, I don't think even in Horror of the Blood Monsters, which really is one of the most absurd examples of the films that they made, you know, I sit and watch it. I'm like the audacity that they had to, to try and get away with this is really quite impressive. And it does make me smile and it does make me laugh. But it's but but, but in a way that I'm like, you guys, this is uh, this is something. I mean, I would love to have seen the faces of some of the people who were watching it thinking it was going to be uh, you know, something that it was something that it wasn't, i.e. they were always trying to sell them like they were, you know, this is a, a big horror movie coming to your town. 
I mean, I think they were nest, they they were probably appealing in, in the case of uh, a lot of them to a younger audience. And I'll give you an example. Carl and I, um, Carl, my partner in Severin, one of the first f films we ever rented from the video shop was Dracula versus Frankenstein, <clears throat> and uh, when we were about ten years old. And when we watched it, we thought it was great. We knew it was weird, but it had. Dracula, it had Frankenstein, it had a carnival, it had, you know, a, a mad scientist, it had uh, all, all the elements that you want in a horror movie. And even though the story didn't necessarily make sense, and Dracula and Frankenstein looked weird, it had enough gore and weirdness that we loved it. So, you know. What for you were the main sort of storytelling challenges in, in trying to sort of do both elements justice in documentary form? Yeah, I mean, taking, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, um, taking a left turn in the third act is definitely, you know, it's definitely something different for something like this, where, mm. it's, where, it's, where, it's, where it's really kind of fast paced and fun stories for the first two thirds, for the most part. And then really cranking the brakes and changing the tone completely is, uh, is something that, you know, you, you, you figure out in, in, in editing of how, of how you do that. And I, I hope we managed to pull it off, but mm. the, but in terms of the actual narrative, what was key was to obviously get people who were not from the film world in that last part, i.e. police or people who knew him like his housekeeper, uh, you know, who, who, because he was pretty much a recluse by the end. So the, the film people could only tell what they'd heard in the papers, the same as anybody else had mm. of what happened to him. So, First of all, it was the challenge of tracking the, the people down um, <clears throat> like police, you know, because retired police, you know, they don't have an IMDb for police. So, <laughs> so finding finding those people was, you know, he had to get a private detective involved and stuff like that. Finding his brother, uh, you know, uh, it turned out that his brother actually only lived less than a mile from me. But uh, yeah, I couldn't Adamson. find a phone number for him or anything like that. Ken Adamson, yeah. But I ended up just leaving a note in his mailbox and, and eventually he called me back. Um, but so getting those guys and telling the story as far as they were concerned, talking to police about it, you know, they're very um, uh, stoic about their, you know, the the factual information as they as it crossed their uh, paths as the story happened in their world. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, Lupe, the housekeeper, you know, was very emotional. She she wasn't didn't know whether to do it because it was something that obviously, as you see in the film, it's still something that upsets her to this day. But on the other hand, she loved Al. So she wanted to, you know, give him the respect and be a part of it for that reason. We were also, I have to say, helped immeasurably by the fact that a chap called Chad Cisneros had done a, a career interview with Al Adamson when he was a film student. And luckily, Chad, you know, gave me his raw footage. So right. I have Al, Al's, you know, account of everything up until 19, mid-90s, basically not long before he died. That was mm. probably about six months before he died that that interview was shot. So so having him as a through line really kind of helped the narrative Yeah, yeah, as forgot well. that. Yeah, yeah, you've got that kind of, the, the, the presence of him in, in the time it's happening, coupled with the, the memories of people remembering what happened and with that in mind i mean i struggle sometimes to remember what i did last month i mean lockdown in particular has sent me sort of stir crazy how how did you find sort of raking over uh, a history that may that hasn't been as well trodden as like other film histories so for the people you're talking to it's just something that happened whereas obviously once you start trying to scrutinize it with the documentary in mind you're, you're lending it an importance that it might not have had before 
Yeah, well, I think I think the sheer amount of people that we got for this uh, was was such that I that I really wanted to try and leave no stone unturned as far as people who were still alive. You know, and a lot of people from from Al's movies are no longer with us. A couple of people we couldn't find, Vicky Vellante being being one of them, um, and a couple have even died since we since we shot the movie. But um, but. You know, some people's memories are better than others, right? But uh, and certainly when when you're talking about stuff that may not have had as much impact on them as it did on you know the people I'm appealing to with the documentary, so uh, so you know so that that's that's just the way it is. But it seemed like everybody had you know something to say about this, and Al used a lot of these people more than once, so it wasn't like. Uh, it wasn't like they just happened a day on a movie and then went on to another movie and they're like trying to remember which movie we're talking about. I mean, most people were, were uh, returned to work on several of Al's movies, so they had something to say. Now, that's the bit that's mo- that was most interesting, certainly about the sort of the context as to who he was and the type of films he made, because there was a few people that weren't backward at coming forward in terms of their condemnation of him as a, as I mean, borderline shyster, really, but... Uh, in terms of money, but um, but it didn't stop them doing more than one film, it seemed, and that was a kind of funny, funny contradictory part of it. So, what do you think it was about Al that kept people coming back for more? Well, I think I think in that case, it was that people were kind of d- desperate for the work. You know, like Vilmos Zygmunt, the Academy Award-winning cinematographer that we have in there. You know, mm. he 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 was newly in the U.S., didn't speak very good English, uh, but was obviously already a good cinematographer and wanted to show it. He needed he needed to work on films in order to do it in order mm. to do that, and so Al was like, "Oh, the guy's cheap, so let's hire him." You know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, but but that only that only works for so long. You know, I think as Vilmos says, he did, he he was like, "Okay, I've had enough now. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do the next film." But he did work on four films with Al, so um, so he obviously needed enough footage for his reel that he would come back and do, do more movies with him. Uh, same with Ken, Ken Osborne, who is the guy who's probably the most vocally angry at, at Al in the movie. I mean, they, I think, made three films together. So obviously it was, uh, I mean, I guess it was in such quick succession that, uh, that they didn't know yet that they might not get the full pay that they were promised on the previous one or something like that. I don't know. But certainly by the end, he was like, OK, that's it. Give me my money and I'm out of here. In terms of what you might not have expected, what for you has been a biggest surprise or maybe a lesson learned about Alan's and you didn't know going in before you started the documentary that you're now... Well, I, I, I didn't know much about the, the UFO project and oh. just, how, uh, just how strange that got. And certainly when I interviewed uh, Stevie Ashlock, who was not on my initial uh, list of interviewees because nobody really mentioned her, um, but of course, she wasn't actually in of, in any of his published films, so um, so that kind of came a year into the project. And when I interviewed her and her take on the whole UFO project and Al uh, going too deep into it, let's say, was that that's when I was like, okay, I need to actually investigate this a bit more. And that's when. I went back and talked to Sam Sherman. Actually, no, I'd already talked to Sam Sherman about it, and he'd kind of hinted that it was that it was a little uh, little too serious, and that Al needed to get out of it to the point where he, you know, even considered that the UFO project had something to do with his murder, 
when 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 they didn't know what happened you know when they were still searching for the body after Dal sorry after Al had disappeared before they'd found the body Sam was trying to come up with any reason why he might have disappeared and and the UFO project was one of those reasons so and the fact that both of them clearly take it very seriously that they only want to say so much on camera means that uh, you know that, that something happened what advice would you have for um for that kind of avoiding sort of project creep, for want of a better expression, where obviously you're discovering all this wonderful and exciting stuff, but obviously not all of it is relevant and not all of it is useful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. How do you keep yourself on track with what you're trying to tell or, or you know, without going off into sort of flights of fancy, which are interesting, but they're of no use to you. They're just going to eat your time. How do you manage all that process of it? Yeah, well, we're, we're both, it, I mean, it comes, it, that really all comes in editing. You know, you know, the basic story that you want to tell, okay, and it can take certain twists and turns as you interview people because you get new information you know you you and you don't want to be so rigid that that when you go into your interviews these are the exact words i need you to say to forward my story no you want to get as much as you can and then you form then you really kind of write it after the actual writing part of it is based on the transcripts of the interviews and 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 basically figuring out what the story is from beginning to end or uh you know you put the very end at the beginning and all that kind of thing um but but it usually involves a very long rough cut, you know, so so some so like five, five, six hour rough cut, something like that. I think this one was a little bit shorter, but um, but but still, it's a it's a very fat cut of the film, which is obviously unwatchable for an audience. But then it's up to you and the editor to basically just keep keep on going back through it, through it. How do, this is this is always a bit that, that puzzles me about making documentaries, because I can see how I can see the logic in it. But how did how during that kind of shaping of it from a kind of five hour lump for want of a better expression to the to the fine film it is now, um, how do you keep a kind of excited eye on it as much as anything else? Oh, because it just keeps getting better for for you. You know, it's basically when you first see it. And I don't mean that to be sort of complacent that I've made a masterpiece. No, what I mean is that it is that when you first look at that five-hour thing, you're like, oh, my God, I've got a terrible film. Um, this is unwatchable. You know, so you so the more you chisel away at it, the better it gets to the point that it gets, okay, this is almost watchable. And you might show it to somebody at that point. Right. And you can feel when you're watching it with them that, you know, these this part's not working, this part's too long, you know, this part can be rearranged but that's when it's it's the more you refine it the, the 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 finer you get it is that when you that's when it's like okay i'm getting closer to when it can actually be showed to people i don't know for someone that's never that's never seen an al adamson film um and with now your obviously huge understanding of his of his body of work as well as the man and they the i was going to set up a uh, a midnight movie with a few friends and a couple of beers what double bill would you recommend we start with? I would start with Dracula versus Frankenstein and Black Samurai. Because um, they're two very different movies mm. and show two very different sides of what he does, but they're both incredibly enjoyable films. Well, let's remind people then um, how and when they can see Blood and Flesh. So uh, Blood and Flesh is actually already out for on VOD on uh, on Amazon. Um 
in, in the UK. And uh, I believe the Blu-ray is coming out next month. I actually don't even have the exact release date of the Blu-ray, but it's coming out soon. And the Blu-ray has also has the Al Adamson film, The Female Bunch, on it, which is a terrific girl gang movie that was shot partially on the Spahn Ranch uh, where uh, where all the Manson business happened. And it stars Russ Tamblin, Lon Chaney Jr. in his last movie. Uh, you know, one thing that Al did was he got a lot of aging movie stars when they were like retired and like <laughs> and basically he was, him and Sam Sherman were big fans of these people. He'd get them back in the movies. Lon, Ch- Lon Chaney Jr. is in this film. Bit worse for wear, but it's uh, but it's also a, a, a terrific girl gang movie. Fantastic. What, what else? What else is uh, on on the uh, the Blu-ray that people can look forward to? Uh, there's a bunch of outtakes. There is um, that are that are broken down into uh, sections that we had to cut out of the film. Part of those bits, you know, that I was talking about that made the film too long. We've just kind of separated them out and uh, and put them on as extras and uh, there's also the trailer for uh, beyond this earth which was the unfinished ufo project while i've got you on what what else have uh, what else have you got on the horizon for severin that you can tell us about well we've got our we've got our uh, half year sale coming up later this month where we've got um uh, six new titles that we're dropping that we haven't announced yet, but it's uh, a couple of Fulci films, a couple of Franco films, a Brit horror, and uh, and a shot on video weird film for our Intervision imprint. Um, later this summer, we will be releasing um, Massacre in Dinosaur Valley and Primitives. Uh, later this year, we'll be releasing an Andy Milligan box set and hopefully a Black Emmanuel box set. So, uh, and in between that, we've got two or three titles uh, a month coming out. So we've got no shortage of stuff coming. So you're uh, you're definitely keeping yourself busy during, even despite the lockdown. Indeed, indeed. Well, that's funny because well, it's not funny. It's unfunny <laughs> because we're in the middle of also a a, a documentary on uh, Cliff Twemlow, and uh, I'm I'm only producing it. It's been shot in England, obviously, mm. and. Um, and unfortunately, we were just gearing up to go back and do, you know, the, a, a bunch of new interviews for it. And they, we got stopped by lockdown. But uh, hopefully that can I used resume to live, soon. I used to live across the road from Heaton Park, where one of the great chase scenes in one of his films was 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 made. Fantastic. Yeah, I remember <laughs> the first time I saw that on VHS. Yeah. Oh, who, was that GBH? Yeah, yeah, GBH. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was a firm favourite in our neck of the woods. Oh, absolutely! It's, it's and that and that is one of the ones that uh, is deserving of a DVD release. Who who's directing that one? Well, at the moment it's David Flint, and uh, he 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 and Carl actually went down to uh, uh, sorry went up to Manchester and uh, and shot a bunch of interviews, and uh, and then I saw the rough cut of it, which Jake West was working on, and and then I was like, you know what, this is a, a great story. We need to we need to actually make this more than just a, a special feature. We need to do this as a proper documentary. So that was kind of the stage we were at when uh, when, when the lockdown happened. And it was already feature length with what they'd got, you know, but, I, but now I'm like, let's get more people. Let's, let's get more footage. Let's, let's, let's make this into something because this is a heck of a story. Yeah, I was going to say he's, I mean, in, in many senses, I mean, he's, I mean, he's not quite as prolific, but certainly... It's a story akin, akin in terms of the output. Obviously, not not the, not necessarily the, the same kind of um, 
third act, but certainly the, from the film output sense, it's the same kind of those that know him know him and those that don't haven't got a clue he even exists. Well, that's exactly right. And what was fascinating to me was that he made, with the exception of GBH, he made so many movies that didn't seem to actually get a release of any kind or not much promotion around the release, yet he still moved on to another movie. You know, he was kind of like... Uh, he was so into the idea of actually making the movies, you know, that he would find a way to get them made. And then nothing seemed to happen with them afterwards, you know. And so uh, but again, he had this stock company around him of of, of dedicated people who were like, you know, when when Cliff came calling, we we'd drop everything and, and go and work with him, you know. And I think that kind of charismatic figure is 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 also fascinating as a as a documentary subject. Well, look, let's remind people then, so Blood and Flesh, the real life and ghastly death of Al Adamson is uh, hitting Blu-ray soon uh, and it's already out on VOD in the UK. That's correct, yes. Well, look, David, thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. My pleasure. Happy to be back. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Oh, yeah. 